Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. I'm John Marzalek, a host for the podcast Queer Voices of the South, a LGBTQ plus studies channel podcast of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking to Ashan Crawley about The Lonely Letters, published by Duke University Press. In his book, The Lonely Letters, A tells Moth, quote, writing about and thinking with joy is what sustains me daily. It nourishes me. I do not write about joy primarily because I always have it. I write about joy, black joy, because I want to generate it. I want it to emerge. I want to participate in its constant unfolding, unquote. But alongside joy, A admits to moth, come loneliness, exclusion, and unfulfilled desire. The Lonely Letters is an epistolary black queer critique of the normative world in which Ashan T. Crawley writes as A, meditate on the interrelational interrelation of Black queer life, sounds of the Black church, theology, mysticism, and love. Throughout his letters, A explores Blackness and queerness in the musical and embodied experience of Black Pentecostal spaces and the potential for a platonic and erotic connection in a world that conspires against Black queer life. Both a rigorous study and a performance the Lonely Letters gestures towards understanding the capacity for what we study to work on us, to transform us, and to change how we inhabit the world. Ashan, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, John. I really appreciate the invitation and the chance to talk with you about The Lonely Letters. Thank you, and I appreciate you being here. I'm anxious to talk to you about your book. <laughs> I wonder if you could um, begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, so I am an artist and a teacher and a dreamer who is based in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, I've been here for, um, this is my fourth year, sort of in the middle of my fourth year of teaching at University of Virginia. Um, I am from East Orange, New Jersey. I am the product of um, public schools in East Orange, New Jersey, K through 12. I went to University of Pennsylvania for undergrad. Um, and I went to Emory University for a Master of Theological Studies, and I went to Duke for a doctoral degree in English. And then I taught at University of California, Riverside for four years. And interspersed with all of that and grounding all of it really is my sort of spiritual, religious um, background. I grew up not just going to public schools, but also going to church mostly. And um, we were in church at least three times a week for Tuesday night church service, Bible study, and then Wednesday night choir rehearsal and Thursday night um, church service. And we were also in church on Sundays for at least two services. Um, My father was the assistant pastor of the church in which I grew up. My mother is also a preacher. My brother, um, was a preacher and a musician for the church where we grew up. And then I became a musician at the age of 14 for the church in which um, I was reared. And so 
so much of my life was at, from a very young age um, predicated upon this sort of religious community, which was a Black Pentecostal community. And um, the first thing I did when I moved to Philadelphia to go to college was find a church. Before I chose my classes, I tell people I, I found a church where I could be um, a member and became a musician for that church and was a musician for several churches in Philadelphia. Um, and so a lot of my sort of, um, the thrust of my work is really deeply grounded in sort of the religious world in which I am a part. You certainly lived in a lot of places. <laughs> Up and down the East Coast and in a short stint, four years in California. Yeah. You know, I, there's as you were saying that, I was thinking about, and I don't remember what section this is in, but there's a section in your book when you writing as a um, they talk to Moth about um, how there's a difference. Um, I'm trying to think how you said this in the way Southerners are viewed by different areas of the country. And in particular, you mentioned the North. Mm -hmm. I think that the North thinks of, itself as cosmopolitan and progressive mm -hmm. and that the North likes to cognize um, sort of states below the Mason-Dixon line as backward and not progressive and not having a lot of sort of intellectual depth and capacity. And I think that is a deeply racialized understanding of sort of a, <laughs> a landmass, which absolutely makes no sense. And so one of the things I was trying to do is to press against this kind of normative um, cognizing of the North and the South as the North is the place where you want to be and as Southern states as the places that you have to escape. And oftentimes the way we understand or the way the normative understanding of the North and South is sort of produced is through language or through the way we think about language. And so accent is often utilized to announce something about Southernness and that something about Southerness is supposed to announce in the voice something about like intellectual capacity. And so in the book, I was trying to talk about the problems with thinking about the South as like the place where intellect doesn't happen. One, because I think of intellectual sort of capacity as a deeply racialized class gendered um, concept. And so it's not something that we should include more people into on the one hand. But on the other hand, really trying to press against the ways we cognize what we consider the South to be as lacking a certain kind of thought practice. I'm really interested in thought practice, but not intellect. And so really trying to say that if we pay attention to the way people sound and we pay attention to the way we normatively understand things like accent, the ways people speechify, we can understand something about sort of the complexity of a history of marginalizing people, not just based on sort of the way they appear in the world um, visibly to us, but also the way folks appear to us in the ways they sound and that we marginalize people in in a long range of things and including in that range of things, it's like skin color, but also like accent. Huh. That's fascinating. Yeah. The way you describe that. Uh, it, it, re it reminds me of um, one of the things I wrote about in my book was about um, queer people who live in rural areas mm -hmm. for Cities and the concept of metronormativity and how um, a lot of people I talked to described how people were uh, in the overall queer community, especially in the cities, the expectation that um, gay people, queer people are supposed to be a certain way. Oftentimes, 
white and pretty, you know, someone like Anderson Cooper <laughs> or Ellen DeGeneres, and that ignores all these other groups of people, which yeah. seems similar to what um, you're saying there. Yeah, it seems like we have a normative understanding of what queer practices are supposed to appear to us like, and they're supposed to be city-based. And by city, I mean like cosmopolitan, big city, urban-based. That's mm-hmm. where queer life happens. And we don't consider the fact that like most of the Black folks in the United States live below the Mason-Dixon line still. Right. And that there is a reverse migration um, out of places like Chicago, New York City, and Philadelphia, and Detroit. And people are moving back to places like Alabama and Georgia and Florida. And so the reverse migration also tells us that there is a kind of dense social life that we actually have to pay deep attention to and that, you know, Black queerness happens in all kinds of places. Um, Someone whose work I sort of think with all the time, E. Patrick Johnson, has written a lot about sort of Southernness and queerness with regards to Black women and to Black men and that we cannot actually think about the North as the only place or even the primary place where Black queerness happens, that it is happening in such dense ways, but we misrecognize it often because we marginalize Southerness itself as something, as a condition to escape, as opposed to a certain set of relationalities that have carried the capacity of queerness. Mm-hmm. And he, he wrote Sweet Tea, correct? Yes, he wrote Sweet Tea. And he wrote Honey, a book, Honey Pot. Honey yeah. Pot. Yeah. yeah. And he has another book called um, Black Queer Women, I think it is, or Black Southern Queer, mm. um, which is about queer women as well. So he has oral histories of, of Black men in the South who are queer and Black women in the South who are queer. And so he's been doing this work for a very long time. Really thankful for it. Yeah. Yeah. He's very well known. Yeah. Um, I have so many directions to go in with you. Um, <laughs> So much to unpack. Um, well, let me let me start with this. What led you to write this book? Um, what led me to write this book? You know, I think I was led to write this book because there was something that I wanted to say about um, relationality and religiosity and exclusion from community of care that. Um, I tried to talk about in my first book, Black Pentecostal Breath, The Aesthetics of Possibility, but I think that the register in which um, the language of that book took is um, not a difficulty at all. I have no anxiety about academic writing, but it's it's a certain kind of register that the language took. And I felt like a different way to talk about the problems of and the joy of blackness and queerness and relationality. Um, I felt like a, a different way to talk about that is in sort of the love letter form that the love letter as a format is typically disarming that we search for in the love letter, things that we can understand. We search for affect, we search for feeling. We search for emotion when we read love letters. And so the the Lonely Letters was an attempt to really think about similar concepts that are germane to Black Pentecostal breath, but in a register that could more 
explicitly talk about affect and mood and emotion and desire and care and love and joy and heartbreak. And so for me, it felt like it was a book that I had started writing before I knew that it was a book. Um, I started writing sort of letters, emails to myself in 2010. And I'm writing these emails to myself because there were things that I wanted to say about love, joy, and heartbreak and loneliness, certainly. And so I began writing it long before it was envisioned as a sort of book project. And I wrote it throughout my duration of grad school as a doctoral student. And I wrote it um, while I was writing Black Pentecostal Breath. And I included some of the letters um, from Black Pentecostal, or some of the letters that eventually end up in the Lonely Letters are actually in Black Pentecostal Breath. And so for me, it was a book that was always being written, at least since 2010, where I was really just trying to talk about my own experiences of love, joy, and heartbreak, and loneliness, and trying to really think the density of loneliness, not as like a lack that I need to connect with someone so I could feel fulfilled, feel fulfilled, but that there was such a kind of overflowing and an excess that was in me that I wanted to share with someone else. So it's a different kind of loneliness even. It's not a loneliness of like feeling like I don't have enough and thus I need um, someone to help fulfill me, but it's a loneliness of having too much, a loneliness of having abundance and really trying to um, outpour abundance towards the world is really sort of what compelled me to keep writing these letters. I remember you saying um, and I hope I get this right, that you talked about a loneliness that's a social loneliness versus a, did you call it an individual loneliness? Uh-huh. or a lo- uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, for me, you know, social loneliness is about, really, I say that the letters, each of the letters that are written to a composite character named Moth, which is about a failed on again, off again um friendship, which is also a sexual relationship between A and Moth, each of the letters are also about like the on-again, off-again relationship between A and the religious community that made him possible, Mm -hmm. Black Pentecostalism. Mm -hmm. And so in many ways, the loneliness that A is talking about, of being excluded, of feeling heartbroken, of desire that is unfulfilled, is because of the social community the social world, the social practices that were the ground of his being, the ground of his existence, this Black Pentecostal world, it's a loneliness insofar as he has so much that he has in him that he wants to give to the community that has gifted him so much. He has so much joy that he wants to share. He has so much delight and pleasure and happiness that he wants to share with them. But because of doctrine and because of theology, that community continues and continues and continues to exclude him. And so the the loneliness is not just of a, I feel bereft as an individual, but it's a really, it's a loneliness that emerges from a social world that refuses to practice a kind of reciprocity of generosity that A wants to practice with this world. Mm. I remember you, you saying at one point how coming out as Black queer felt like a, it led to a severance from the Black Pentecostal community. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it did, it did because yeah. you, you are no longer 
accepted or acceptable to this community. You are considered to be abominable. It's no longer that like I stopped cognizing my relationship and talking about my relationship to religiosity as, you know, I'm struggling with my sexuality or I'm struggling with sin and I hope you all pray for me that I can be delivered. It was not that. It became, I actually don't believe in the concept of sin. And so what do you do if you do not believe in the concept of sin when there is a religious world that says that you are sinful? And so by coming out and proclaiming not just that I'm no longer struggling with my so-called sexuality, but I also no longer actually um, adhere to a concept of sexuality as even having the capacity to be sinful, a practice mm-hmm. of relationality that is about consent and joy and pleasure, that that's not sinful. And what that then produces then is an occasion for the community of which you are or what you were a part to say, well, because you will not adhere to our doctrine, because you will not adhere to our theological position, you are no longer a member of this community. And so coming out became an occasion for being separated from, severed from this community. Yeah. The, and you describe the joy that you felt being a part of that community and also still feel um, with music that you really, um, I guess, first learned in the church. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the I was a very late choir director. I didn't want to be a choir director. I tell people often because one of the kinds of rumors and gossips that, or the rumor and the gossip that proliferated in our church world was about a lot of the musicians that we knew and a lot of the choir directors that we knew. There was a lot of whispering about these men, cisgender men, um, being queer. Mm. And it wasn't the language of queerness. It was language that was often sort of used to dismiss people. But it was always about like, the men in these churches who are singing the music, the men in these churches who are serving as musicians are sinning. And so for me, listening to this music that had the capacity to move the congregation, the musician who's playing the Hammond organ, who's really moving the folks to dance and shout, and the choir director who's really, really sort of effective at producing a certain kind of sound from the choir that has all the saints really in engaged in intense practices of praise are also these people that everyone thinks is like (laughs) a sinner. (laughs) And so for me, as a young person, I really did not, even though I enjoyed the music a lot, I did not want to be a musician and I didn't want to be a choir director Uh... because I thought that somehow practicing the music would be the thing that, in quotes, turns me into a gay person. And -hmm. because I didn't want to be um, queer, um, because I thought at that time that queerness was sinful, I tried to resist the music as much as possible because I thought the music would then not confirm what was true. I thought the music would actually transform me into something that was untrue. And so music is a domain that I think is a site of struggle for lots and lots of folks in the Black Pentecostal world precisely because it is a question what does it actually have the capacity to do to the congregants, to the performers, to the musicians, to the singers? What does this music, which is so deeply effectual, it has so much affect, emotion, 
and intensity? What can it do to the lives of the people who are actually hearing it and to the lives of the people who are performing it? Mm. You talk a lot about music and how you're drawn to the music. And you also talk about movement and dance. And I wondered, you know, as you're, as you're saying this, it made me wonder, what is it about um, music and dance that really draws, at least from what you're saying, so many Black queer people into the music? Well, you know, I don't know. <clears throat> I feel, you know, there is no biologically determined relationship to music and sound at all. There's not a biologically, there's not a biological predisposition towards um, creativity, even though some mm-hmm. people like to talk like it, there is, there is not. I think that one of the things that happens is, I'm trying to explore this in this, in a new project that I'm actually working on, which is about the Hammond organ and the Black church. Ah. I think that what happens actually is that because the music is the place where the question of sex and sexuality is staged as a question mm-hmm. and as a concern, that that is the place where people find a kind of safety and refuge to be incoherent. It's a place where people can find a a space of reprieve. I tell people often that when I was a choir director, it was the only time where I could be flamboyant and no one um, commented on it not during the time of me directing the choir. Now, they might have said things after the church service is over, but in the moments that I'm actually directing the choir and I'm sweating and I'm bending over and I'm, you know, screaming at the the Mm -hmm. choir saying, um, they loved it. And so it was this moment of reprieve in this deeply oppressive space where I could be free. And so the music, it seems to me, is a place where there is a concept of the incoherent nature of sex and sexuality. I don't mm-hmm. think that there is a you know that there is a predisposition towards direct inquiries for people who are queer. I think we search for, and another thing I'll say before I say I think we search for. Another thing I say is I think that we all actually have the capacity for queer relationality um, and that I think that what the normative world does to us is it compels us to relinquish our capacity for queer relationality in order to be normal. That the Mm. practice of the normative is supposed to protect us from state violence. It's supposed to protect us from religious violence. It's supposed to protect us from theological violence. And so what we do in various instances and intensities is attempt to move towards a normative center so that we will not in our person be violated by the normative world. And I think that what queer folks do is that we refuse to relinquish our relationship to the thing that gets coded as the thing that we should let go in order to be normal. And Mm -hmm. that it's, and so we refuse, even though people talk about the choir directors queer all of the time, we refuse to stop directing the choir because in that practice, we find a certain kind of liberation and freedom. And other people sense that liberation and freedom too, which is why they are so exuberant and joyous in 
watching someone else direct the choir, that they recognize in someone's refusal to relinquish their relation to the thing that is called a problem, that perhaps we all can actually practice a certain kind of freedom. And so what one of the things I'm trying to constantly wrestle with and think about is how is it that um, a certain kind of cultural practice has given a certain kind of latitude to actually ask the question of, as opposed to make a declaration over what relational possibility is supposed to be. And I think music is the place where this is constantly sort of just being overturned over and over again, that people are asking the question, like, how can we be in relation to one another? And that the music in Black churches is a place where we can at least ask that question. Hmm. There's a, it's interesting. There's a letting go with the music within this, um, and I think this is how you described it, within this overall structure that's very um, set in terms of what's considered, quote, sinful and what's not and the rules you're supposed to follow. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a letting go. There is a vulnerability. There is an openness. There's a, and it's, and you are supposed to cultivate this openness, this vulnerability um, in the service of spirit moving in you. And so there is a way that this music tradition, and like, you know, Black folks since 1492, if not before, um, 1444, some would say, that mm-hmm. Black folks have been told that there is something wrong with our flesh. <laughs> like that's yeah, just yeah. the truth. And that what the music actually allows us to do is to say there's nothing wrong with our flesh. And actually, look what happens when we pay attention to it. Look what happens when we reverence our flesh, when we treat our flesh as sacred. Look at the kind of music that we can create. Look Mm -hmm. at the kind of joy that we can have in our actual flesh. And so I'm constantly trying to think about the ways the music is an example of freedom. It's not freedom itself, but it is an example of the kind of of, of the kind of liberatory possibility that can be had if only we have the fortitude to sustain it. And I say that the music isn't the liberation itself because often the music lyrically is deeply antithetical to liberation. Mm. Often the lyrics can be about sin and shame and about, about the problem of the body and how you have to escape the sins of the flesh and you know how you have to you know reduce the flesh as, as you know, people constantly sort of rehearsing the Apostle Paul, in my flesh dwells no good thing, which I think is deeply wrong. But yeah. that the lyrical content of a lot of this music is actually antithetical to the performance practice of the music. And so uh-huh. for me, I'm trying to really, really think about sort of the music as a sign toward or a gesture towards the liberatory possibility without ever saying that the music is itself the liberation. Because the music can be used in multiple methods, it can be used in multiple doctrines and multiple theologies. But then also, then if the music is only in the if the music and the sound creation is itself only ever in the direction of a liberation project, then we can really deeply interrogate any kind of musical tradition that would have us be bound. Um, that would have us sever ourselves from community, that we can critique any of these sort of doctrinal and theological practices and say, look at what we do when we don't have concern over 
or anxiety about sort of producing the normative. Mm. That's fast. That's all fascinating. I have to, I have to tell you since I asked the question that I was an organist too, going um, through high school and oh, cool. in, make, in college. So a different type of music, but yeah, um, yeah. I, you know, what you're saying really strikes me in a way I'd never thought about before. So I appreciate that. Yeah, thank. I mean, you know, the organ is a it's it's my favorite. The Hammond organ is my favorite instrument. I love the way that it sounds. I think that it. Mm. I think that what musicians, Black musicians and Black churches have been able to do with this instrument is actually genius. And I'm talking about musicians who are trained in music theory, and I'm talking about musicians who only know music through ear training. Yeah. That yeah. it doesn't matter the, the ways that they can engage with congregation and notice what's happening, the dynamics of the church service, how they can be responsive, but also push it's nothing short of the thing that we call genius, but it's not a sort of production of an individual genius. It's the production of a sort of social world that allows them to flourish in their musicality. So I, it's like my favorite thing. And um, the improvisational, oh, let's see, improvising, I'm not sure to say the word, um, you know, character of a music that's, um, and I think you may have said this, similar to jazz. Yeah. It's a it's an improvisational music that is similar to, but not the same, I would say, as jazz. You know, some people say that gospel music is just the blues with different lyrics. And I understand the thrust of that, but I actually think it's um, an imprecision for both what the blues is as a musical tradition and what Black gospel music is as a musical tradition. I think that improvisation is one of the ways that we can understand what happens during a church service with a musician. Um, one of the things my current project is um, allowing me to consider in a kind of robustness and fullness is the way that the music of the Hammond organist is heard before the church service begins, during the announcements and the offering, while the people are singing the hymns in the choir, and while the preacher is preaching, you can still hear the Hammond organ, and after the preacher finishes, and during the altar call, and after the service ends and you get the benediction, you can still hear the sound of a hand and organ. It's like the music becomes the sonic atmosphere through which the entire church service articulates itself. And that's a different, and it's not, it's about improvisation, yes, but it's the kind of improvisation that recognizes that the concept of improvisation isn't just, I'm just doing anything as a musician, I'm playing anything, but it's that it's, improvisation is deep study improvisation is deep relation that the musician can only imp improvise throughout the duration of the church service by having a deep attentiveness and carefulness with regards to what's happening throughout the duration of the church service. You have to be paying attention. You have to know what's happening so that you can respond to the move of the spirit quickly. And so I, I, I really love what the musicians do. It's like improvisation, but it's a, it's a different kind of improvisation. That leads me to a question that um, it just really fascinated me when I read your book, when you were talking about um, spaces in between. I, I think I remember you saying the space in between um, improvising and was the word provisional? Okay, yeah, yeah. And you had these examples throughout your book that were just so um, interesting to me. You talked about um, your interest in exploring spaces between, um, uh, let's see, modulation with chords um, color graduations in your paintings, um, mm -hmm. and even the space in between 
hand claps and foot stomps. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if you could talk more about that whole theme going through your book. Well, I think between is the thing where things happen. I don't think, you know, I think one of the ways that I try to think about relation is relation is the capacity that is explored and produced between things. And that it's the it's the betweenness that matters, not the discrete categorical difference between you and I or between this thing and that thing. That the the possibility for life only emerges between you and I. The possibility mm-hmm. for life only emerges between when my hand claps and the sound that happens after the two pieces of flesh hit one another. That Mm -hmm. it is only the thing that emerges from the relation between. And so for me, constantly trying to say that betweenness or in the middleness, um, in the midst of, is the place where relationality, life, joy, pleasure, heartbreak, sadness that's where that's where life is. That's where it gestates. That's where it is produced. That's where it erupts. That it is the betweenness that is the capacity for our deep relation, not the fact that I am different from you, but that we can be in relation. That thing that happens through our difference, the thing that happens through the space, through the through the gap. It's kind of like atoms never touch one another or and that they always repel one another. So they're in deep relation with one another, but they're also in relation through a certain kind of withholding from one another, that there's a space, but the space between is the thing that gives the occasion for me to actually feel or sense the world. And it's that kind of betweenness that I was trying to to get at by thinking about hand claps and foot stomps and sound and like paint colors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think at one point you even talked about the transition from um, sunset or the transition from darkness to light when the sun is rising or setting. Yeah. I mean, it's like you can't, I mean, you can pinpoint the moment that it happens, but you also really can't pinpoint the moment that it happens. It's like, yeah, there's this place there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that, it's, it's that momentary thing that's so momentary that the word momentary cannot capture it. It's a mm-hmm. that that that, but it's like that edge between like dark and light, which is like this. It's the horizon, and it's really beautiful because I think it happens in music too. One of the things I'm trying to really think about is how in a church service one moves in a Pentecostal church service where there's a lot of praise. And someone is shouting, which is dancing in the spirit. Mm-hmm. And how you can begin that shout kind of like playfully and, you know, without a kind a certain kind of intensity, even if it's conviction. But in the middle of like your playfulness, which is not immaturity, by the way, but just like a kind of uh, a lightness of, of the dance how there can move from that kind of playfulness and and delight into a kind of deep intensity. And there is no moment when you can pinpoint that's when it happened. But there's always this moment when it transforms from this kind of playful delight 
to a kind of deep intensity. And it's that space between, again, it's that space between the playful and the intensity. But the playfulness is the thing that leads to and is the path towards that intensity. And the intensity is the thing that allows for one to continue in a certain kind of playfulness and joyfulness. And trying to figure out that relation is the thing that I'm constantly in various kinds of ways just trying to figure out and live in is that that space between. Wow. I remember you talking about um, how, as people that weren't in the same faith community as um, a Black Pentecostal church, talk would would say that um, I'm trying to think how you said it that the the movement and the dancing and the shouting and the praise that it was it was too out there that <laughs> that they they wanted to hear it. they want they they thought that what was really spiritual was someone being quiet I guess quietly praying for yeah, instance yeah you know we were told as young people, by, by non-Pentecostals, it don't take all that to praise the Lord. You're too loud. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're too loud. You're too sweaty. Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, I will never make a claim that one has to do the things that the Black Pentecostals of my own upbringing did. One doesn't have to run around a sanctuary. One doesn't have to clap hard. One doesn't have to shout. One doesn't have to holler. One doesn't have to sweat. You do not have to. But the thing that I really love and appreciate about the space is that it it yielded itself to that kind of fleshly practice of praise. It yielded itself and opened itself up to and cultivated the care for people who engaged in this deep practice of fleshly praise. And so the, the concept that it doesn't take all that is like true. Like a lot of Pentecostals will say, yeah, like, yes, it's true, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that there's something that exceeds what we think of as um, necessary. That it's like, yes, we know what is necessary. We know what is needed. And we're still going to exceed the capacity that you set forth or the limit that you set for us. We're going to go after something even more urgent, even so, something even more intense than the thing that you think is possible. Because what I learned from that is that, that we have to think about limits and we also have to think about how to overcome limits and delimitation. And in the kind of refusal of being embarrassed or ashamed about the fact that we do things that people say is too excessive, instead of being ashamed about it, They say, we're going to do it even more. And what that has gifted me as a way to think about, for example, Black queerness. I'm not going to be ashamed of the fact that I practice queer relationality. And instead of being ashamed about it, like the Black Pentecostals taught me, I'm going to preach about it. I'm going to sing about it. I'm going to make art about it. I'm going to live the ethical world of Black queerness, which is about joy, pleasure, delight, and consent and Um, consent to be in the world with other people in ways that are about the cultivation of a social practice of joy. And so, you know, I learned from them when when they refused to be ashamed about the concept of us doing too much or being too excessive or being extra, that we said, yeah, we are, and we, and we're still going to do it. That's great. You know, there's, um, I don't know if this is even a fair comparison, so I'll be interested to know what you say about this. But you, you mentioned you did mention a point 
you did mention at a point when you were talking about spaces in between of the the space in between a point when you're listening to dance music, especially dance music that might be played in a queer bar. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, there's that little space when the songs change and there's an energy as a transition in from one song to the next. And there's this energy when it happens and you can almost feel on the dance floor, this ripple go through and, you know, people will start jumping up and down and there's a letting go and a joy that comes out of that, that reminded me a little bit of what you were describing that you experienced in the Pentecostal church. I mean, it's my favorite part of <laughs> what a DJ does is the, the, beat, yeah, the yeah. beat match. I talk, I, one of the letters talks about sort of DJing and how they match beats um, between songs yeah. and how they, you know, how they delight you and how they produce surprise in the listening audience who's dancing by putting together two songs that you might not have thought about putting together, but they figure out a way to match the beats together. The BPM, they figure out a, a way to fade these, this one song into another song. I think that is such a practice of deep, deep um, spiritual intimacy with with sound, but also with song, and also a deep intimacy and practice of joy. Like you have to know yourself in order to do this kind of practice. And I think the first place where I learned to appreciate that kind of um, space between songs was in these Pentecostal churches, where we would have what's called testimony service. And we would sing these songs that had four lines, maybe an AABA format mostly, where you would sing a line, sing a line, and then you sing the resolve, and then you sing the line again. Mm -hmm. And the songs followed a a very sort of basic chord structure. But, you know, you would sing one song that has a certain set of lyrics, and then if you weren't finished with 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 the mood that the song was producing, after you sing a song for three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, the musician can keep playing. And then the singer or the song leader can add another song to that. And with a different lyrical content, the musician can play similar chord structures to the ones that preceded it. And so you don't end the song, you just extend it with another song. And it's the space between where you're like, okay, so what's going to happen next? What's, Mm -hmm. What's going to be the next thing that emerges from this movement? And I think DJs, are engaging deeply in this practice too, which is a deep, I think it's a spiritual practice. And I think that singing in churches is also about the the finding of this deep spirituality. And what that means then is that the spiritual practice doesn't belong to and is not the private property of the church. And the spiritual practice is not does not belong to and is not this, the private property of the club. That it is a spiritual practice that emerges from being in the world with other people and that yeah. black folks have cultivated this as a practice. And so for me, it's like trying to find the various ways this beat matching and fading happens is one of the things I'm trying to do. Hmm. You, you you talk about, and you, you, you talk about in, in the very beginning, how you revisit several different theme, not themes, but um, different concepts or philosophies that you're thinking about. And one of them you, you come back to quite often Um is how Western thought and history and experience has really has not really has ignored black thought black thought experience in history and that is adverse to difference. Whereas you said the black queer experience 
is an em- embrace of differences. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the history of Western philosophical, theological, um, and sort of normative thought is the practice of identifying difference in order to dispense with it, in order to get rid of it. And it's it's because it's attempting to produce a normative set of practices and experiences for a political economy of, of racial exploitation, which is also yeah, gender yeah. exploitation and sexual mm-hmm. um, exploitation. And so the normative practices of thought in sort of Western modes of cognition and disciplinary knowledge is about the practice of disciplining um, difference. It's about disciplining dissidents. It's about disciplining anything that could have the capacity to interrupt the smooth, ongoing nature of the practice of the normative. And Mm -hmm. Black queerness is, for me, an example of a mode of life and relationality that, for me, is not primarily about the identity of the ones that are producing it, but is about the attempt to practice relation. And what it does, then, is it allows us to really say what happens when one refuses or one relinquishes the anxiety about trying to be normal according to the normative world. What can you create? What worlds can you build? What forms of relation can you have and cultivate when you say that the normative is not all that is possible and that the normative actually is produced by violence and that the normative is the thing that we should attempt with with deep intensity and reflection to escape? Mm-hmm. Um, what can you do? Who can you be? What kinds of relations can you imagine? What kind of love can you have? And so that's what, for me, Black queerness does. It, it, it provides for us an example of a form of life, a form of relation that recognizes the perniciousness of the normative world mm-hmm. and recognizes what one must give up in order to refuse being incorporated into the normative world and in recognizing it still says, I am not going to move in the direction of the normative. And there's a freedom there in being able to not embrace the normative. There's a freedom, there's a joy, there's a pleasure, but there's also heartbreak. It's heartbreak. Yeah. It's it's deeply sad. Um, You know, you, 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 you give up, when you say that you're not trying to be normal, not as in like an individual self-assertion either, um, but like as a, I am not trying to be normal according to the logic of the social world because trying to be normal according to that logic is to transform me into an individual who is not deeply affected by others. Mm-hmm. Like refusing to attempt the normative is heartbreaking insofar as you recognize you begin to, or you come to recognize the many people who give up their capacity for relation, for joy, for happiness, for delight, for pleasure, um, so that they can be incorporated into the normative. And you recognize the fact that they're still not incorporated into the normative and they're also heartbroken. And so it's like, not only are you giving up your, your joy, but you are also giving up like the your capacity for resisting the normative world and the violence that it does to you. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking how, obviously, in, in in the United States in today's political world, there has been a 
um, such a backlash against people who want to go against the normative? There's a backlash and, but I think, you know, I think it is always a backlash, right? It is always Mm -hmm. a response to, it is always reactionary to a form of life that is joyful. And that the the normative world cannot constitute itself except by being reactionary against life, against breathing, against, against joy. I think about often and try to sort of structure my ethical, um, imperative by folks who are marginalized by the normative world. So I think about like black trans women often, how walking down the street for a black trans woman can be itself an occasion for violence. Their practice of literally walking down the street, which is an occasion for joy. Like I never want to talk about just the trauma that black trans folks experience because that is not the primary function of life. Like they are experiencing joy. <laughs> They're experiencing yeah. pleasure. They are experiencing breathing. And that through that, that simple, pre- that mundane thing of breathing, that they become target to a certain kind of normative violence because they refuse to relinquish the knowledge of who they are. They refuse to relinquish it and they cultivate it as a practice and they really delight in who it is that they are. And that the normative world then is an attempt to say, you can't do that. You can't be that. You can't live that way. And they're like, well, but I can and I will. And I feel that the ethical imperative then is to say that the kind of life that we should live should always be the kind of life that recognizes that to resist the normative world is to make oneself exposed to violence and harm. And the response to that is not to say, well, let me not expose myself, but the response to that is, how can we then interrupt the, the capacity of institutions to do us harm? How can we interrupt it and how can we abolish their capacity to do us harm? That's where our ethical mm-hmm. thrust should be. Well said. Beautiful. Yeah. So many places to go. <laughs> um, and we just have a short t- amount of time left. I, I wanted to make sure I, we discussed your art because for the listener who hasn't read The Lonely Letters yet, as you go through the book, in addition to um, reading these beautiful letters, you also have um, artwork displayed throughout the book. Um, and it, and you tie the different art pieces to different things you're talking about in the letters. And I love the colors and the abstractness of, the, um, of your art. Thank you. Um, you know, the art for me is not primarily about the products that one can see um, after they have been finished. It's for me about the process of their being made. Mm -hmm. And so the art primarily was a way for me to think with the fleshly practice of Pentecostalism um, that I am no longer a part of in terms of the institutions. I don't go to church no more. But I still think about like the the practice of of shouting as a as a dance tradition as a really joyful practice, and so the art was an attempt to say what happens if I take a canvas or a piece of paper and I put it on the floor and I take some pigment powder and I put that on the floor and I put on a YouTube video of some saints praising in church, and what happens if I praise along with them? What if I start shouting on this paper? Can the the piece of paper or the canvas be evidence 
of the fact of praise that has taken place. Because mm-hmm. I think of the movements that the saints do as really, really sort of powerful and artistic and joyful. And so I wanted to like show what that looks like. And so I took paint and I would put it on my hands and clap to the rhythm of the folks praising, or I would take paint and put it on a tambourine and let the paint fly over I the I love surface. when you describe that. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I love just that. It, it was the joy and even getting paint all over. You said your, your wood floors and your apartment and on the wall. I don't know if you got it on the wall, but it sounds like it went everywhere. It got on the wall and yeah, I didn't get all of my deposit back for that apartment. Oh because, no, <laughs> it was uh, worth it though, huh? It was worth it, and now I have um, I my basement is my studio in the house where I live, oh, and nice. I have carpet down, which is not what I should have. <laughs> but <laughs> the carpet has paint on it; and it's a mess, but it makes me happy because it it allows me an occasion to really, really. Um, honor the sacred nature of my own flesh. And mm-hmm. also it allows me to honor the communities that taught me about what praise and joy and delight actually um, can feel like. And so that's the thing that I attempt in my art practice. And I, I think it's a thing that I hope resonates with, or I don't think it's a thing that I hope resonates. I hope that it is a thing the joyfulness that I feel, I hope that it resonates and can be felt with the folks that engage the artistic practice too. Mm-hmm. I was thinking on a, a lighter note that maybe your carpet is becoming a canvas itself. <laughs> that is, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. if we're looking at it that way, then that is great because it yeah, is. Yeah, that's right. Well, I, one last thing we haven't talked about is, and I, I, um, I'm fascinated by quantum physics myself, uh-huh. and that, that was a that was something that you tied in um, throughout the book. And and you, I remember several places you you um you expressed quantum physics in art, even. Yeah, I mean, I love what atoms do. <laughs> <laughs> I think that one of the my draws to sort of quantum the quantum world is that what happens in terms of time. Um, as a linear progression in the ways we people sense movement is not the way things happen on a quantum scale. So a teeny tiny scale where atoms are interacting with one another, stuff doesn't happen in a kind of linear fashion in terms of temporality. And which means to me that the things that make up me and you don't operate according to the very logic that we can assume that they do. And so time moves backwards for atoms, that what a particle's uh, future state is determines what it cur- determines what its current state is, mm-hmm. which means that cause and effect have a totally different relation to one another. Which is mind-boggling. Which is yeah, mind- and it's like really yeah. hard to actually think about and hard to, co- to cognize Precisely because we think of cause as the thing that happens before effect. But in the quantum world or in the world of teeny tiny things that make us up, the thing that will be tells us what the thing is currently. And that don't make sense. And I kind of love it. And so what what I try to do and what I try to do is to really think about the complexity of perhaps we don't understand everything and perhaps we don't have a full sort of accounting for movement. Perhaps we don't have a full accounting for 
or understanding of time. And I think that love is one of the places where we really get a sense of the fact that time as a sort of linear, forward-moving, progressive thing doesn't actually always make sense. That sometimes you can sit with someone for a couple of hours and you say, yeah, it it's feels like I've, I've been sitting with you for days. It feels like I know you. It feels like that there's a certain kind of intensity. Um, and intensity, I think, is a, is a correct word. There's an intensity that temporality of linear movement can't really account for. That you can you can sense and you can feel and you can and you can be with someone, and that linear time doesn't really have a real, it doesn't have a grasp on. I've only been with you for a month, but it feels like an eternity. That there, yeah, is, yeah. I I no longer think of those as just um, poetic devices that people utilize in order to talk about how happy they are. I actually think, and I think that the pandemic has also taught us this, that, you know, I tell people, I feel, even though this is December, I still feel like I am in February of 2020, that it feels very much like time has, or like linear time has stopped. Things are moving and things are changing, but that when we are in moments of intensity and uncertainty, which love is also intensity and uncertainty, that when we are in these moments, the idea of time is kind of moving forward and progressing. I don't think that that fully accounts for the ways we register sort of temporality. It doesn't fully account for the ways we register movement in our flesh. And so there are various ways that we can feel a kind of intensity as antithetical to linearity. And so trying to think with sort of quantum states was one of the things that allowed me ability to talk about love as an intensity, but also heartbreak as an intensity, yeah, grief yeah. as an intensity, like all of these things that we feel that don't really, they, they cycle, but they don't necessarily just move forward and then you're out of it and you're done. Yeah. Mm. Which takes us full cir- circle to the, your book is a series of letters, because I remember you saying that you were, what you wanted to do was, um, attempt a mood rather than a linear narrative. Yeah, yeah. I really wanted to think about how can you say the same thing? I love you and I miss you. Um, Mm. How can you say that differently? And um, how can you say it in as many ways as possible so that they know that um, you love them and you miss them and and that you want to be with them? And is there a way that you can say it in a way that will touch them so that whatever the fear is, you know, because Moth has a lot of fear and anxiety about what he is and what he means and how he feels about A, um, but that whatever that anxiety is, the, the hope that A has is that by writing these various long ways of saying, I love you and I miss you, he's also hoping to move Moth into a consensual desire to reciprocate, um, not just in a momentary way, but, you know, in a sustained way. You know, they have relationship, and the relationship, sometimes they meet up and they sometimes sleep with each other, and they were in, like, a dense relationship and lived together for a while. 
but that got interrupted and what A wants more than anything is for the sustaining of that feeling. And so the, the letters are the, the mood of I love you and I miss you. And how can I how can I say that in as many ways as possible? And you say that that A has to be um, I guess cognizant of of how he's writing his letters because you said you said a moth is a fragile being that if you I guess hold it too tight or squeeze it too tight it's gonna disintegrate. Yeah, I mean you it's about delicacy it's about a delicateness. It's about um, figuring out the method by which to hold something so that you don't destroy it, but that you hold it with tenderness and care. Like, you know, you you don't hold a baby hard. You you kind of rock them um, gently. And so it's it's about detecting um, the, the kind of relation of carefulness and care that you must have with the thing that you are trying to hold. Um, the kind of tenderness that you have to have in holding and in such a determination, then allowing yourself to be moved by that in order to be delicate, in order to be um, careful so that you don't hurt, but that you also, you still hold, which means that you're still supporting. You're still engaging in a, in a practice of, of grasping, but it's not with the, with the desire or intention of harming, it's with the desire and intention of, of with care, um, holding something. It's beautiful. It's it's really. Um, I know that I learned so much, and I it's just about myself from reading your book. Thank you for you know. I'm always thankful for anyone who reads even a page of anything that I write. It's really mm. it's really a, a gift, and so thank you for the gift of reading and for the the gift of engaging in the conversation. I really appreciate it. I do too. I appreciate um, you joining me today. Um, and to our listeners, I really encourage you to go get a copy of The Lonely Letters um, published by Duke University Press. It's a, it's a beautiful book. And uh, as I said, you'll learn a lot about yourself. And join us again next time for Queer Voices of the South on the New Books Network. <laughs>